here. At 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 27 of Blockchain Insider, and the very first one of 2018. So, Happy New Year, listeners. Today we bring you a look back at all the stories we missed over the Christmas break, our predictions for 2018, and we catch up with Coindesk's Peter Rizzo. Okay, back for the news is the wonderful Colin G. Platt. Did you have a good break, sir? I had an excellent break. Uh, way too much food, way too much French wine, uh, not enough sleep, good times. Uh, happy New Year. That sounds like a great New Year was had by all, and you're now in a field in France. I, I am next to a field in France. Simon and I had a discussion earlier today in which I showed him this field in France that I'm right next to. He is right next to a field. It's unbelievable. Um, before we get into the news, uh, we got to let you know that today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly and in strict privacy using smart contracts. Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 with over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology partners. It's ready to build on today. The financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Now you can transform your business ecosystem with the platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on, Corda. Go to corda.net to learn more. All right, let's drop into the news, Colin. Kicking off with some predictions. Uh, It seems like a number of predictions have been made. Everybody's doing their predictions posts. The one here is on Cointelegraph. Uh, the, The title is 2018 Blockchain and Cryptocurrency Outlook Expert blog. Um, did you see anything in here that you liked? Uh, so I saw some interesting things in here, um, some things that I liked, some things that I, I didn't agree with, but maybe that's my lack of expertise here. Um, so Ken Alabi, who is a uh, doctor in research in computer sciences and all kinds of great stuff like that, uh, brought up some interesting things. His main themes are scaling, um, particularly within these decentralized blockchains. Hasn't talked about it as much in the, the permission blockchains. Um, But he's starting to see some of these things start to mature and come live, which I absolutely agree with. I think that's going to happen in 2018. We're going to hear about that um, from a few interviews we have coming up in the next couple of weeks, as well as today. Um, Liquidity, volatility in cryptocurrencies. This is not a new theme. So uh, the fact that Bitcoin can move up and down 15, 20% in a day, maybe still 30, 40% in a day in, in some of the other cryptocurrencies will continue in his opinion. I absolutely agree with this. So uh, once again, a reminder, if you're thinking about putting money into cryptocurrencies, don't put money you wouldn't take to Las Vegas in them, um, whether you're going long or short. Uh, he also sees a major bubble burst or major correction. I, I actually don't see this happening. I think we might have had ours. It's going to continue to go up and down and be volatile. Simon, I know you. this kind of goes with uh, the thoughts that you had, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, personally, I think we're going to keep going up. Um, I wouldn't put all, all of your money for your house in it. Um, but I don't know that we're necessarily at the point where everything falls apart quite yet. Interesting thoughts. Scaling without question is the one that has been for the permissionless blockchain world, the debate. Uh, He points to Lightning and Raiden, um, but not ultimately solving the problem uh, and directed acyclic graphs like uh, those from Hashgraph or IOTA or Byteball uh, being being of interest as well as uh, 
techniques around sharding really starting to take off. Uh, so it basically says that this ain't your mama's blockchain anymore. This stuff's evolving, uh, and maybe that's a part of what what solves uh, what solves for it. And then we've talked about liquidity an, an awful lot. I did on 11fs.com, as you mentioned, uh, kind of my 2018 predictions. And I tried to take a balanced approach where I looked at some of the risks as well as some of the uh, opportunities. Uh, And I called out the main risks as being... First and foremost, regulatory risk. I think the South Korean moves to limit the amount of investment coming into the markets and several of the regulators probably following that just because I do think we're going to have that story where somebody loses their life because they put all their money in this stuff and it went horrible. It just, it just, it really does make my stomach churn that it feels like that could happen. Secondly, I think panic uh, can take hold in a speculative market really easily and these markets don't have circuit breakers uh, if if we do start to see downward pressure it could really really run and that would create the the third risk which is a run on the exchanges how much of the liquidity is real is something we've talked about a lot before and then lastly the big risk is are we creating real value here um and vitalik nailed it with his tweet from the um 13th of december um so the total crypto coin market just hit 0.5 trillion dollars but have we earned it um, and that whole tweet storm is, is really interesting uh, so where's the economic value i don't think that's been derided yet but i do think the potential is is absolutely there on the flip side um i do think that um we'll see the beginning of web 3.0 projects gaining traction um web 3.0 is the term often used as kind of decentralized infrastructure where web 2.0 was everything to do with social networks the uh internet of commerce uh where it was amazon web services and and cloud web 3.0 is is the potential for decentralized services and new governance models creating new business models uh, prediction two uh, was that institutions are missing much of the knowledge and infrastructure to safely invest in crypto assets. So if I'm uh, a pension fund, I probably don't know anything about this space still, but I'm getting people asking me about it. If I'm a, a, a large um, independent financial advisor, I'm probably being asked about this, but I don't necessarily know where to go. And whilst there is the development of stuff like OTC desks and custodians, I think that's got, got a long way to go. Prediction three, I think ICOs will get smaller and more legitimate. Uh, I think there's uh, a definite, as as you were saying before we came on the air, Colin, the ICOs that are happening uh, on CryptoCompare.com, you can see a fall off from October almost directly, uh, and and the practice of you know, VCs pushing companies unlikely to deliver a, a, towards a token sale for a liquidity event. I think that's just cowardice and absolutely has to stop. Um, but I do think we'll actually see some best practice start to evolve, and um, I'm definitely um, keen to work with anybody who's doing anything along those lines. My fourth one was one that I think is maybe may or may not happen. I'm, I think this one's a bit of a risk. I think the first pump and dump ring might be arrested as organized crime. Um, but I do think regulators and or law enforcement have a long way to go in terms of being that sophisticated to catch it. I wonder what role the exchanges and others should be playing. Um, and I wonder if a regulator knows a pump and dump ring when they see it um, and the impact that can really have on uh, unsuspecting kind of uh, consumers who are putting their money in this space, um, especially with, with some of the activity you see on centralized exchanges. And last but not least, uh, because I've said a lot of words, um, 2018 for me is the year crypto has to grow up. Uh, it's It's been nice, it's been fun, um, but we've got to deliver some value right now. So Colin, I don't know how you reflect on those, on, on those thoughts. 
I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. I think um, I, I I would like to see the the pump and dump specifically touching on that point. I'd like to see that disappear um, because I, I don't think that's helpful. And I think that hurts a lot of people who are just getting into this and, and naively invest in, in something that's going up because it's going up um, when there's a lot of um, people kind of coordinating that price. I, I'm... I'm more skeptical that people will, uh, that regulators will come down on that in the near future. I think um, 2018, unless something so egregious comes out, or uh, maybe some of these large ICOs, um, particularly singling out Tezos here because of the news, not because of uh, necessarily any um, bad or anything worse in what they've done, but we have talked about this in the show a lot. Um, I, I think that they're they're the more imminent targets because they are so out there. Whereas somebody running a, telegra- a Telegram group with 100 followers that goes out and pumps, that should stop. That is illegal. That needs to stop. But um, I, I don't know that it's going to come quite that quickly. I'd give it another year or two. Um, the one I did want to touch on there is is ICOs and legitimacy. Um, I, I really liked your point about them um, getting rid of the things that VCs have been doing that aren't necessarily beneficial to the wider investment community. Uh, I don't necessarily see ICOs becoming smaller and more legitimate, smaller perhaps, um, more legitimate, I'm not sure. Now, there's certainly some out there that are doing very good, le- very legitimate things, but I think a lot of that will kind of move back into more traditional uh, venture capital, seed, ABC type investing. Um, but we'll see. We shall see. Um, big year in front of us. But uh, although we've been out for the Christmas break, cryptocurrency never sleeps. Never sleeps, not even once. Uh, so how could we not start the main news stories without uh looking at some prices. So fortune.com are talking about how high can Bitcoin's price go in 2018. So we're recording this on the 3rd of January. What are we looking at right now, Colin? Around 15,000? Happy Genesis Day, by the way. Uh, yes, indeed, indeed. Happy ninth birthday to Bitcoin. <laughs> um, so Bitcoin here is is currently trending at just over 15,000 on, on Bitfinex as I'm looking at USD. Um, so how high can it go? I mean, a lot of people put this in. Um, you said that we might have a major correction inside of these. Personally, I think that this thing can go up to 100,000 because I don't see why not. Um, there's a massive amount of risk in that. Um, other people are, are talking about numbers that are much higher, much lower. Uh, 50,000 has been banded about quite a bit. Um, I, don't, I don't know really what the fundamentals are. It's really just a, how interested are people going to be at? How much are people chasing this price? And how much um, legitimate mainstream investment is coming into this, as well as how much pure uh, leverage is coming into this. This is people borrowing money to put it in. Um, So it could be everything from it drops back down to a few thousand to uh, it doubles or triples from here. Nobody really knows is the short answer. So you... You, you talk, uh, uh, talked before, and I don't think we've really explored it on the podcast, about um, Bitcoin being a liquidity gobbling monster. I- expand on, on that thesis a little bit for me, because I think it's, it's an interesting set of ideas that, that kind of goes against... Because, I mean, Bitcoin periodically seems to go through this uh, rally, 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 30% correction. And between $19,000 and 13000 I think we dropped more than the 30%. But actually, now at around 15000 uh, 15, we we seem to be starting to, to stay again and that just could be that it's the end of the the, the end of the tax share is gone and we're, we're off to the races again but and profit taking's been done but how much of this liquidity gobbling you know what does that actually mean what does that mean okay so let's explore that quickly what what do we mean by liquidity so uh, when when I talk about liquidity I mean specifically the the money that circulates in in the economy or is easy to get to so in Bitcoin uh, very clear demonstration here this is 
Bitcoin changing for dollars or euros or yen or whatever you have inside of an exchange. Uh, you can think about it as a, as a free float. So people go in, um, they sign up for Coinbase or Kraken or some other place for the first time. They go in with their credit card or with a bank transfer and put $100 in. They buy Bitcoin, whatever the going price is, and then they sit and forget it. So that $100 uh, is effectively dead money. It's sitting in there. Uh, somebody sells them a Bitcoin and that money doesn't move anymore. Now, there's people that say, well, I want to invest in this longer term. So they might do something similar on a larger scale. And they actually put that Bitcoin in the HODL, H-O-D-L, um, or basically they withdraw this. So the amount of Bitcoin that's actually circulating is actually reduced, whereas the dollar amount stays fairly fixed. It's sitting on the exchanges. Some people are pulling this out, but it is quite difficult. I know Simon and I are having discussions um, that we personally experience some of the, the difficulties around these uh, in, in moving money in and out. Uh, I don't see that happening and, and being fixed in the near term or really any reason why people would be selling Bitcoin in mass unless we have a, a huge drop and some people want to pull out. But all of this kind of goes to push and say, it's very easy to, to buy Bitcoin the first time, then that money just kind of gets pushed off to the side. And because we have a fixed number of Bitcoin uh, that will be 21 million, and, and we won't get into it today, but minus about 12 and a half uh, at some point in the future, um, every Bitcoin, single Bitcoin or fraction of a Bitcoin that gets pulled and doesn't come back on an exchange to react to market movements just makes that um, the amount of Bitcoin moving around in a liquid uh, available amount so much smaller um, that Ultimately, this is going to drive volatility. This is going to drive the direction or the price of Bitcoin. And there is a thesis that I find quite interesting. So, Colin, thank you for that. Um, so, yeah, indeed, I want to echo the happy ninth birthday to Bitcoin. Um, there's a couple of other uh, coins out there that have done uh, reasonably well. I mean, if uh, it's, it's just been a, a crazy few days um, in, in the marketplace. Uh, Ethereum hit its record high, so Coindesk talk about uh, it hitting over $900 um, at, at an all-time price high. Um, and the XRP billionaires are covered in Forbes. So Laura Shin, shout out to Laura, um, did a, a reasonably lengthy piece on the um, supposed net worth of uh, both Brad Garlinghouse and Chris Larson, the executives at, at Ripple. Any reflections on, on these two, Colin? Uh, yeah, let's talk about Ethereum first. So um, Ethereum is is one that um, last year did incredibly well. I think it went up something like 40 or 50 times uh, from uh, this time last year uh, to just a few days ago. So that's an incredible run. The fact that it's continued to go up over the last couple of weeks doesn't really overly surprise me. It's, it's up slightly against Bitcoin, but not a ton. So if we use that as a benchmark. Um, Ripple's the one that I think has been a standout. I think it's been up something like 360x uh, last year. So um, when when I talked just a minute ago about how Bitcoin has um, smaller amounts of Bitcoin relative to the total amount of Bitcoin uh, that are moving around, Ripple is even more exaggerated by that. Um, there's a lot of people that uh, reportedly been investing in Ripple back when it was worth sub one, one cent um, saying, you know, this is going to be the next Bitcoin. All the banks are using it, huge growth, and have been buying that up. Um, the total market cap or network value is probably more um, uh, more true is is now back in second place ahead of Ethereum. Um, so currently about 110 plus million dollars, billion dollars, sorry. Um, so just under half of Bitcoin. I don't know why it's necessarily at that. I've, I've said on multiple occasions, I don't really get XRP and Ripple. Um, I, I would not put any money in this because I don't get it. Um, not to say it's good or bad investment if you have to put money in. 
Um, I, I have no idea why it's up, um, but it is up a lot and some people have a ton of this stuff. Yeah, it's the supposed bank coin, isn't it? It's like the view is the banks will end up using this thing. Therefore, uh, there's there's a whole bunch of people saying, "Oh, it's the banksters," and uh, the Reddit uh, conversations around this stuff always give me some 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 tickle and some amusement. Uh, the, there's definitely uh, the Ripple argument, which goes, uh, "This is preventing spam on the network, so you burn some XRP as a way of paying for your transaction fees." And they've pegged the transaction fees to fiat currency, so you would always pay a low fee. Uh, for, for using the Ripple network. And the, they publicly talk about having 100 plus 150 banks on their network, although um, I do believe there's definitely some marketing um, and some PR going on within that. So you can see why um, uh, and somebody who's in this space thinks, well, what's going to get adopted? Uh, what coin should I be involved in? I, I can sort of understand the, the surface level of it. it. It does amuse me that we see people getting really angry about it, but still investing in it. Um, and always with these things, it seems to be driven around news stories a bit of news comes out and the price seems to to move massively and, and the volatility is unbelievable on these things but I, I think I, I agree with your broader point, Colin. I, I don't get the connection between building an enterprise network for payments and this cryptocurrency that is operating more like gas than ether. Uh, it's it's just a way of preventing spam in the network. Uh, it's 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 an odd one to me, but um, certainly it's something that a lot of people see a lot of value in. Um, and of course, on the very first episode of Blockchain Insider, we spoke to Stefan Thomas. Uh, or I think it was the first episode. Um, and so uh, do check out. Uh, episode one to, to hear from him directly. Um, so uh, 10 years in, apparently, Colin, according to uh, <laughs> according to Hacker Moon, um, nobody has come up with a use case for blockchain. So uh, is that true? Well, uh, first of all, as we just said a moment ago, happy nine years to Bitcoin. So we're, we're nine years into blockchain. So uh, if we're counting by, by the Bitcoin, maybe this guy's been thinking of something else. This is an article by Case Stinchenbaum. I hope I'm getting that right, um, who was looking at um, a lot of what was promised. And Tim Swanson's written some interesting articles about this. Uh, we, of course, talked to Tim on our interview episode over the holidays. Um, so go back and listen to that as well if you haven't yet. Um, but he said, essentially, uh, Bitcoin, as it was first marketed, was really around payments and, and a way to take on the banks and Western unions of the world. And it, it proved that it's not very good at that, which um, I think Simon and you and I have had discussions about this. Uh, he talked about some things about transactions uh, without governments being involved and um, how the price goes up and, and worries about people getting involved in these things that are potentially more financially vulnerable and the price going up and down, which is a theme we have. So I, I agree a lot of um, the things that he says in here and criticism specifically about Bitcoin, blockchain, some of these other things that people come up with, like micropayments and IoT, not yet coming about. Um, but I saw a really interesting um, tweet rebuttal from, from Taylor Pearson uh, a couple of weeks ago after this article came out. Um, and I agree with a lot of what he said as well, which is, you know, this is probably the most well-reasoned why blockchains don't make sense. Um, but the really underlying thing that, that Taylor brings up uh, is he's kind of come and, and looked at this from the point of view of uh, when people first talked about the Internet, it was you had the you know, the crypto anarchists who said, um, you know, this is going to change everything. It's going to destroy the governments because we can talk to each other. And then you had people who, you know, came out and said, um, this is going to do nothing, nothing at all. Uh, nothing's going to change. Uh, this is much like reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times on the Internet. It doesn't make it better than physical paper. But really what the, the point is, is not how people prefer paper reading on the Internet. It's how people 
uh, change how uh, newspapers are run. They're run completely different now because of the internet than they were run before the internet. And, and the point that um, should be looked at with this article is how are cryptocurrencies going to change financial services, not how are cryptocurrencies going to destroy financial services or how are financial services going to use blockchain. But it's, it's that finer grain point that's kind of in between complete collapse or complete adoption. That is, when people have a lot of money stored in, in Bitcoin or in other cryptocurrencies, which we're seeing today, what changes? What are the new businesses that happen? What When this stuff becomes easier to use, uh, more freely available, what happens around the world? And so uh, Taylor pointed out things like, um, you know, going back to this New York Times or Wall Street Journal, that isn't what changed. It's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's Snapchat, it's everything else that came about. Um, it's talking about how Amazon came about, not how Walmart fell apart. Um, what are these new big things that happen and affect these other businesses? What is Truly, in, in the more central term, what is the disruption that happens because of a cryptocurrency or a permission blockchain in a lot of cases? So I've been saying for some time when uh, somebody pays f uh, for a speaking gig from me, but um, here's, here's one for free, um, that uh, Citibank didn't miss the internet, Barclays didn't miss the internet. They, they have apps. They have internet, they have websites, um, but they didn't benefit quite the same as Facebook or Google. What are the new business models is the really interesting question. And one of the things with any new technology is what is the new business model? Uh, iTunes was uh, an interesting business model. Uh, Spotify is an interesting business model. Um, the ad revenue model is really, uh, what goes right back to 1993 with a little website called gnn.com uh, that was the first to really use ads to support its network. So will we see that? And will we see something similar i look for things that are that are promising though and i i, I do see uh that if you were to use the metaphor and i know some people are sick of using the metaphor of the internet but if you were to use that metaphor we had vpns we had people doing stuff pre-internet for internal networks that was of value and i see the dlt stuff we're doing is very very similar i mean in the late 80s apple computers and the, some of the ibm machines that were coming out into corporations were digitizing for the first time and putting computers onto people's desks and by the early 90s, before the internet had really taken off, that was completely normal for, for many people around the world. Uh, and I see the DLT projects as, as largely that. Um, whereas the some of the stuff that's happening in the permissionless space uh, over a 10-year time horizon, 20-year time horizon, has the potential to be really strong. What's different this time, what's really compelling is now there are these coins now there are these ways to invest in it that are so wildly speculative that involve so many of the crowd that have so much risk involved but so much opportunity involved uh it, it really is the wild west and, and and that's why it's compelling to me can i just jump in on top of that i mean absolutely it's um uh, really interesting I've, I've made this kind of flippantly before um the thing behind bitcoin or backing bitcoin isn't uh, you know all this cryptocurrency um, and cryptography and all that fun stuff. It is, it's a religion, and I don't say that in a pejorative way. Um, what I mean here is people believe in it, and they go out and they evangelize why Bitcoin's going to change the world. And if enough people hear that, and they start to believe it as well, it's going to self-fulfill itself. Um, and we don't have that push behind public databases. So a lot of people look at permissioned blockchains and DLTs, and they say, well, you, you could do this in an Oracle, uh, public order, Oracle database. Yeah, you probably could, um, but who's the one out driving that change? Whereas you have a lot of Bitcoiners, you have a lot of Ethereum uh, proponents going out, beating down banks' doors, talking to CEOs and getting in to talk to central banks and getting them to go, hey, this thing's going to change your world. And you know what? They listen. That's the difference.
I think they listen for a reason, though, Colin. It's not just that, hey, it's new. I think that there is something to the fact that there is, there is something in this governance argument. The fact that uh, I used to have to have one governance body and entity, and the fact that I can create a business model around governance. I mean, Bitcoin's experiment was, can I have a trustless model in which people are economically incentivized to maintain a ledger? And it has worked. Uh, and it, it's proven to be correct. Now, can I do other things with governance? Yeah, the, the Tezos experiment was interesting because of how well they thought about governance and um, on one sense in terms of making code updates, but maybe not so much on the foundation. Uh, all right, so uh, next story. So Colin, are cryptocurrencies threatening the world economy? There's a story, I think it was on uh, Coindesk, where the ECB uh, calls Bitcoin a major threat to financial stability. Um, and there's a story coming from Bloomberg where Goldman sees crypto and credit shadowing a robust 2018 US economy. Well, I'm, I'm super happy because I made a prediction on one of our blogs that came out uh, about two weeks ago um, that one of our major themes here is gonna be uh, economic instability uh, talked about by the Fed or the ECB. Uh, we're 2nd of uh, January and I've already got one right, so I'm very happy. Um, but more, more seriously and to the point, um, a lot of money has started to pour into cryptocurrencies and people are taking notice. Central banks uh, and bank analysts are starting to see what could happen if we do have a major correction like we've talked about or what happens if, um, like I've been saying, the stuff keeps going up and people start mortgaging, remortgaging their house to put money into Bitcoin and then it collapses. Um, or it goes the other direction. I mean, the, it could continue to go up for a long time. Um, so people could make a lot of money and this could change a lot of dynamics. Um, but I think it is a really um, interesting point that both in, in Europe and the United States, people are starting to worry about what happens with Bitcoin and what happens to the economy. Could this um, change the way that uh, the credit cycles work? Could this change for the better or for the worse? Could this change the way that the, the financial system works? And uh, the ECB has singled out uh, particularly exchanges and getting involved with Bitcoin futures, which were a big theme in the last month. So I'm a fan of the term optics, which is how things play out when you see them uh, to positions of power or positions of influence. And, and optically, when you look at CBO and the CME offering Bitcoin futures, somebody in a regulated position, somebody at a central bank goes, ah, this is this is starting to become something I should pay attention to. So as you said, slap in the face. This is the this is the mainstream moment. Uh, then we're seeing the ripple effect from that. Um, if you'll excuse my um, my naming of, of of a company we talked about. Okay. So speaking of financial stability, uh, there's been a really interesting cryptocurrency pop-up that a, very, a lot of people have been excited called NEO. If you've been curious about NEO, the so-called Ethereum of China, they're holding their first ever developer conference in San Francisco at the Intercontinental Hotel on the 30th and the 31st of January. So the first 50 listeners of Blockchain Insider can get an exclusive 15% discount on tickets by entering the code INSIDE. That's I-N-S-I-D-E, INSIDE. And you'd go to DEVCON, .neo.org so devcon.neo.org uh, to find out more about the event and to register today all right uh, colin couple of stories from around the world bumper week of news as ever uh, new us tax codes are hitting crypto investors this one was on bitcoinist.com if if there weren't enough things to complain about the new new us tax code here's a new one for anybody involved in bitcoin um, so uh, formerly um, 
Bitcoin investors, Bitcoin traders um, had to pay taxes whenever they bought a Bitcoin and sold it later. It was taxed in the U.S. as property. I think we talked about this on the show about six months ago. So it's the same thing as if you buy a house. Obviously, if you're not a U.S. taxpayer, it's very different uh, depending on which country you're in. If you're doing it, talk to somebody who's professional. We are definitely not. Um, and we're still not in the U.S. Uh, the loophole they closed, essentially what traders could do is if they could buy a Bitcoin and trade that Bitcoin for Ethereum, they could do what was called a like for like. Um, so this is essentially if you bought a house and then you traded somebody else a house, you didn't have to pay um, the gains on that. You could use the same thing or at least some accountants let you use the same things in your U.S. taxes. They've essentially closed that now. So they said, well, if you trade from Bitcoin to Ethereum or Ethereum to Litecoin, uh, you have to pay taxes on those gains. Um, this would shut down a lot of options that traders uh, might be taking right now, which could uh, affect the markets in some way, shape or form. Um, but it does note here in, in Bitcoinista.com that uh, Bitcoin traders are notoriously bad about paying their taxes in the first place. So we'll see. We shall see indeed. Uh is the season for taxes for for those around the world with capital gains so uh, we'll see what happens uh, and and the last story this week colin uh is what you really need to know about an app called revolut and their crypto rates so revolut being a fintech app that we discuss quite often on uh fintech insider our sister podcast uh they launched an ability to i mean they are ostensibly like a a foreign exchange app you you go into the app and they give you really good rates for exchanging to whatever currency you want they have something like a currencies and it's super easy to use um, and they have about a million customers and, and growing rapidly across Europe and the world. Um, they introduced recently a feature uh, to allow anybody to buy cryptocurrencies um, but this article is really talking about the rates. Um, so uh, what, what was happening with this one Colin? Yeah so um, as you said people that use Revolut that change between let's say um, pounds sterling and dollars or euros and yen um, find that it's really good because you can use Revolut to um, send money between those currencies and you can go pull money out of an ATM without having to pay extra fees, uh, which is quite cool. Um, they set up something for Bitcoin um, and what they talk about is A, that this is a very volatile currency, which if you've listened to the show for more than two minutes, you, you know that we said the same. Um, but they also add a, a fairly hefty fee of one and a half percent to um, transact in Bitcoin. As far as I'm aware, you can't actually take Bitcoin out of the, the Revolut app. Um, so I'm, I'm personally not sure what the point is it of this thing is other than pure speculation and there perhaps are cheaper ways to do it. Uh, if you are looking at using this, um, do understand um, how they do it. It's based on some averaging across uh, different exchanges using what's called a volume weighted average price and then they add their fees on top of that. Um, if you're selling, you use a, a similar thing with another fee on top of that. Um, not necessarily the most straightforward thing unless you know exactly what you're doing. So if you are thinking about using Revolut, uh, read this this article in the show notes, understand exactly what's going on and what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, so it, it comes from Revolut.com, but we had a big discussion on fintechinsidernews.com, which is our platform for fintech news, which you listeners can submit blockchain stories to, of course, on fintechinsidernews.com. Um, and num we've had a lot of comments of people sort of saying, we think this product's crap, we think this product's really good. And in terms of ease of use, um, you know, the 11FS team, we, we benchmark for... Um, for financial companies user experience and we gave this one a full five out of five like it's it's just so easy to to make those transactions once you've got a, the capability in your app uh, but at the same time uh, if you were really looking to compare that to some of the other products in markets in terms of value maybe it's not so strong 
Yeah, and I think there's no doubt that as far as a UI, this is, I mean, it's like moving any other money, and Revolut does a pretty good product if you're trying to move uh, traditional currencies. Um, so if you're looking for easy use, great. Um, the world knows my views that uh, ease of getting in and out of Bitcoin is um, perhaps less important than volatility. Indeed. Uh, so uh, that does us for the news this week. So many stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, story in Reuters uh, talking about the Israeli central bank looking to offer a digital currency um, for faster payments, which is an interesting way. When they say digital currency, it's not really clear what type of currency that is. Um, apparently, Putin, Vladimir Putin of Russia, is looking at the possibility of a crypto ruble. Um, and this one comes from Coindesk as a way to avoid Western sanctions. So they've seen that you can get around currency controls and they, they would like some of that. Um, and then there's a story in uh, Coindesk as well about uh, John Mann MP talking about why Bitcoin's blockchain technology, um, I don't get why it's Bitcoins, but um, could have a huge impact on how the NHS works, uh, which, you know, if you want to get into politics... I have lots of thoughts. Yeah, if you want to get into the politics of the UK, um, then National Health Services is, is uh, kind of a, a beginning step for you. Um, it's, it's just kind of uh, the, the lightning rod for all politics. Uh, I do buy the idea that there's something to be said for different governance and proving to somebody that their data has been looked after in a private way. If you look at Filecoin as an interesting example, um, but I don't know if I've necessarily got confidence in uh, the digital service um, that the NHS has done under their national program for IT over the past decade to be able to work with that effectively. But anyway... Uh, final story is a burger company shares rose after announcing its plans to start a blockchain customer loyalty program. So this is Bloomberg. The Hooters franchisee surges 41% on the cryptocurrency rewards program uh, in Bloomberg. Do we know anything about this one, Colin? All I know is they put this thing out and they said this is similar to kind of the, the Burger King Russia thing that came out a few months ago. All I can say is uh, Blockchain Insider is also announcing its cryptocurrency rewards program. So definitely sign up for that and we're, we're gonna surge 40 or 50% on that. Yeah, so this was um, Chanticleer, a Charlotte-based Hooters franchisee and owner of burger joints across the US. Uh, it's just this, um, I think Izzy Kaminska in FT uh, Alphaville talks about this this crazy idea of putting blockchain in your company name and just seeing your shares share price surge. I think there's uh, something really weird going on in, in markets and around the appetite to get anything that looks like blockchain at the moment. Somebody sitting at a Bloomberg terminal getting far too excited. Well, good thing we already have blockchain in our name. Well, indeed, um, if only we were offering tokens and shares, which we are not. Um, all right. Uh, don't forget, listeners, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered uh, by getting in touch with us on Twitter at bchaininsider. That's the letter B followed by Chain Insider to share your thoughts. Or you can get in touch with GSAS himself at Colin G. Platt or, or myself at S.Y. Taylor if you want to pick up with anything with us personally. You can also head over to fintechinsidernews.com to learn about the stories we covered and comment and if we like the comments we, we we do read some of them out in the show and they make the show notes or also you can drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com we would love to hear from you 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger consultancy who help banks, asset managers, or anybody with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize your blockchain projects, get access to the crypto markets, and when this stuff's going to be real, or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope you'll reach out at hello at 11FS.com. All right, next up, we spoke to Pete Rizzo, uh, who is the editor at Coindesk. 
Okay, joining us today for our interview segment, we have Mr. Pete Rizzo from uh, Coindesk. Pete, how are you, sir? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Um, and of course, we have Colin G. Platt. Colin. Hello, hello. Uh, so, Pete, for those that are living under a rock, who are you? What do you do? Uh, yeah, so Pete Rizzo, editor for Coindesk. Uh, we're the leader in blockchain news, uh, largest uh, industry news source focusing specifically on blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Also the host of the annual consensus conference, which is the industry's uh, largest event every year in New York. And uh, yeah, definitely... Uh, you know, Coindesk.com, publishing news daily that we hope uh, is informing the growing uh, crowd of blockchain and crypto enthusiasts. Thank you for being with us. So um, we have you on um, kind of in, to talk about the look back at 2017. You published uh, the most influential list in, in 2017, uh, and it definitely generated some buzz on social media. So do you want to, do you want to talk me through the, the kind of the editorial process that happened here and, and some of the characters and, and how you chose them? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so every year, CoinS published its, its uh, most influential in blockchain list. Uh, this is, I believe, the third year that we've done this. Um, you know, as the industry news source, the industry paper of record, uh, we're always trying to help people process the year and, uh, you know, come to, I guess, an agreement or consensus on, uh, you know, what happened. I think there's a lot of information flow. There's a lot of... Um, uh, you know, information diversity and new things that happen every year. And I th we see our most influential list as both a way to highlight the people that played a role in that story, as well as sort of tell that story itself. Um, so the rankings are designed to highlight people and the people themselves are designed to or intended to represent stories or trends that we thought as being editorially relevant. So talk to me about, can you give me an example of a couple of the names on there and why you chose them? Like who was number one? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I can um, kind of give a brief overview of uh, the list. Um, so going from 10 to 1, we had Jihan Wu, who is the CEO of Bitmain. Uh, we had Amber Balde, who is the blockchain leader at JP Morgan. Eric Voorhees, uh, CEO of a company called Shapeshift. Peter Woolley, uh, one of the main core developers for Bitcoin. Uh, Yao Quinn, uh, who works for the People's Bank of China. Joe Lubin, um, who is the CEO of a, one of the largest companies in the space called uh, Consensus, uh, Naval Ravikant, a uh, famous uh, Silicon Valley investor, Charlie Lee, creator of Litecoin, uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, CEO of JP Morgan, and our sort of controversial number one was Bitcoin Sign Guy, who you may remember as the young fellow who photobombed uh, Janet Yellen and uh, sort of caused a stir at the Federal Reserve this year. So on behalf of pretty much everybody who must have ranted at you on social media in the past couple of days, why was this not uh, Vitalik or somebody else? Why was why was Bitcoin sign guy number one? So the Where's Vitalik movement was very strong. Um, so again, I, so I kind of walk you guys through the process for the most influential, which is that we put out a poll uh, every year. This year we did it in October. Basically features everyone who we could think of who would be influential. Uh, we have the community vote. We take the top vote getters and we essentially bring them to the writer's room and people bring their arguments on uh, uh, who they feel like represents the year that was or who they feel was the most influential. And one of the key things that we used to sort um, is we asked the question, is this person more relevant this year or more influential this year than they might ever be again? Um, so that obviously helps us sort it down, right? So I think the to the where's Vitalik crowd or to the, you know, many people who are talking about Ripple CEO, uh, Brad Garlinghouse, I think was someone who was, you know, sort of on the cusp there, you know, that question really helps us sort it out. When you ask the question of, you know, is this person sort of hitting, 
like their potential peak as an innovator in the industry, I would argue with someone like Vitalik, you know, I don't think 2017 was, you know, the year that really is when you look back at his history and his career and all that he's done, I don't think 2017 is going to be, um, you know, something that is too memorable. I mean, there may be people who debate that. Um, but, you know, I, we find that by using that criteria, it really helps us, you know, focus on um, that year because there are a ton of people who are influential in this industry all the time. Um, I think the most important thing to remember is that it's most influential in 2017, um, not most influential period. And I think there's a huge difference there uh, when you're sorting by those metrics. No, I, I understand that. I guess uh, what I'm keen to get to is what do you think uh, Sign Guy represents and some of the other people on this list represent? So like, what what are you saying by choosing them? Yeah, true. I can uh, unpack that a little bit. Um, so we felt also with this list that, um, you know, also when we were trying to narrow, narrow it down is, um, you know, when you think about somebody who's influential, you should sort of be able to get an idea of that person as maybe something that's an extension of themselves. So they should feel almost like a superhero. And the, the theme that we did with the art here was sort of the real life superheroes of the industry. We almost sort of, you know, you guys have played around it with before with like the sort of Avengers type theme or, you know, looking at how, um, you know, who does this person represent? Are we able to describe them in a way that makes them seem larger than life? And are they larger than life people and what they represent and how they embody those things? Um, so I guess the best example of that would be the number one and two slots. So I think there were a lot of people on Twitter um, who, you know, found it kind of polarizing. But number two was Jamie Dimon, um, obviously the CEO of a large incumbent bank who, you know, said a lot of things this year that weren't super nuanced, but I would argue had a huge impact in terms of, you um, you know, galvanizing support and interest on Bitcoin. So I think I look at uh, Jamie Dimon as someone who, you know, not just as a person, he's influential, but um, what was influential this year was also Wall Street and sort of the lumbering steps that it took towards blockchain, right? It wasn't always sophisticated. It wasn't always, um, you know, even well-intentioned or, or even, um, you know, or maybe they didn't even come to it with really any understanding, but they still had an impact in the way that they moved. Um, and we felt Jamie was a good, um, number two slot for that reason. And, you know, the number one selection was Bitcoin sign guy, um, who we felt represented who really were the people who were influential this year, which was the burgeoning retail market of investors, the everyman um, sort of investors who just did a crazy thing, right? It is crazy to a lot of people in this industry that the markets are so high. It is crazy that you know, where everybody came into 2017 with predictions, the story was so vastly different than expected, right? We came into 2017 with a, oh, slow and steady wins the race. So, you know, we'll get there eventually. And then, you know, what we saw in 2017 was just an explosive growth. And I think it was propelled a lot by people who were willing to take bold and crazy steps. And I don't think you'll find someone who's did something crazier than getting kicked out of a congressional hearing for what was essentially a very sophomoric prank. So we all had a good laugh with it. Can I can I ask though, uh, going back to your number two, Jamie Dimon, you had another person from J.P. Morgan in there that I know um, got some interesting feedback, um, Amber Balde. So Jamie Dimon represented kind of the the institution um, coming back and saying, you know, Bitcoin's a scam or whatever it is. Amber's the one that's actually in there doing blockchain, but also a lot of the the cryptocurrency stuff in the background at J.P. Morgan. Um, why did JP Morgan find two people in, in the top 10? 
Yeah, I think that's a good. Um, I, I think that's a good point. I think we looked at it less that J.P. Morgan had two people in the top ten, and more that Amber was sort of the person who was most representative of the enterprise sector. I think we would all sort of agree that it was a bit of a down year for enterprise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think there was much activity. I don't think there was many proof of concepts that went live, and I don't think there was anyone who really stood for that sector. Right? If I look back at the year, Life Masters was really absent. R three sort of towards the end of the year sort of dissipated. You had a lot of these you know, big players who, again, like, you know, they're very influential people in their own right, but I think they sort of lost the narrative. They lost the thread. And I think when we looked at Amber, um, you know, obviously we wanted to have somebody who was representative of the enterprise crowd. And I think she's an interesting character because, you know, she is very open to innovation. She does seem to understand this sort of cypherpunk, young millennial sort of ethos that is coming up. And a lot, in a lot of ways, like Bitcoin Sangai, you know, she's someone who's here, um, and sort of innately understands where it's going at a deeper level and, or it seems to. And, you know, I think the piece that Morgan uh, Peck, who was the, um, you know, contributing author there, uh, told really kind of speaks to that is that she, to us, you know, speaks to these young people who are in enterprise institutions who are trying to make change and, um, you know, because of that, I think it's just a fascinating story and um, that she is someone who represents something that I think we'll see more of, right? I think we'll see more Amber, Amber Valdez because I think we'll see more young people in their institutions who are seeking to enact change. But I think that she's been the most visible about that, right? So you see her in pictures at Ethereum parties, just like a unicorn, and then you see her in like a banking environment. And I think her elasticity, her ability to navigate those two worlds, uh, both of which are very present, very distant, I think speaks a lot to her as a person. And, you know, to the internet who, you know, sort of reacted to this, I'm glad that they're interacting with her. I I looked at a lot of the, you know, way she was, um, you know, kind of talking to those people. And I'm I'm glad that she got exposed to them. And, um, you know, I hope that there's, you know, value gained from them. Uh, So I love the term you used for Amber uh, as the daywalker, referencing the movie Blade, where you have somebody that can walk uh, in the day and the night, but has the vampire skills and the vampire strengths. I, I, I like that metaphor and and I, I think all of these choices are metaphors um there's the um the sign guy is the metaphor for the mainstream kind of consumer audience coming into this space um the uh, kind of choice as jamie diamond as the dinosaur as wall street is you know, really you can unpack cme and SIBO offering futures you can talk about uh kind of the beginnings of uh institutions and larger funds looking to get access to the crypto markets and icos and there's there's a whole bunch of things that kind of sit sit beneath that. So as you kind of look into 2018, let's let's look at two things. One, where do you see that going and evolving? And two, what's happening right now that you think is 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 really important and key? Well, yeah, I think that's a good point. So looking at 2018, you know, uh, going back to Jamie Dimon, uh, the nickname we chose for him was the dinosaur. I think, you know, I don't think that Wall Street is going to be dinosaurs anymore, right? I think they're going to realize that they need to evolve, and I think they're going to dip their toes um, into some of these um, products and trends. I think they're going to become more savvy, right? So I, I, I expect next year that that sort of caveman sort of uh, way that they've engaged with the industry will dissipate. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the lasting impact of that will be, right? If I look at the future in terms of the markets, um, you know, there's an ETF and then 
from where do we go from there? I mean, I think there's still a ton of education um, that needs to be done. I think we very much are in a prehistoric phase for Wall Street at this point, right? I think that does feel like we're rushing towards milestones, right? It does feel like we want to see international futures. We want to see an ETF. But the question that we're going to get to, I think, over the course of 2018, at least from the markets or the Wall Street perspective is, you know, what comes after that? So it's like everybody's buying in and we're driving the price over these milestones and these milestones are being hit. But like, what happens when the Bitcoin ETF is just another ETF? And a Bitcoin as a you know payment asset has you know utility that um, you know I think in the Eric Voorhees industry uh, interview he even talks about this where you know it's arguable that Bitcoin's utility is less than it was a year ago because of technical decisions that are being made um, you know so what I, I really view 2017 a lot like I view 2013 which is you know it's a sort of euphoric year and I think. You know, if I look at uh, speaking about Jamie Dimon as, as, as sort of number two and like that sort of evolution, I see, you know, that education process is going to need to begin. But with that education process, you're going to move from this sort of excitement phase to something where, you know, people are going to have questions, they're going to have doubts, they're going to they're going to naturally become, you know, more savvy. Um, and I think, you know, to, to your point about I think earlier you mentioned, you know, the markets and that's been a big story. I think um, that'll have an impact there. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I guess that's one theme that I see continuing. So one of the really interesting things in hitting on that is, is Jamie Timon. It seemed like every time he opened his mouth and said uh, negative things about Bitcoin, the price seemed to drop and then kind of shoot back up. Um, do you think Jamie Dimon or other um, heavy hitting figures will continue to have this discourse? And if so, do you see similar things happening without trying to predict the markets? Yeah, I think it's questionable that he had any impact on the market. I think that his influence was more that, you know, I, I go back and forth about like, what was it that about Bitcoin as a fraud, right? It does seem to feel like this let them eat cake moment. It's like he sort of had spoken about it before. He had sent a lot of things. He even dismissed Bitcoin before, but there was a certain like quality to that statement that for some reason at that time with Bitcoin at all time highs, it just seemed so preposterous that it sort of galvanized this sort of movement. And, and I think what Diamond did this year was he got people talking about Bitcoin. They're not saying interesting things, but they're talking about it. They're talking about cryptocurrency. They're talking about blockchain. And that was enough, right? Sometimes doing just that was was the most impactful thing. But as I was, think I was uh, sort of suggesting, I see the narrative kind of into next year is that as they start talking about it, you know, people, when they progress through ideas and concepts and conversations, they end up, you know, becoming more informed, they end up um, having doubts, and they end up being more sophisticated, right? I wouldn't, I don't think that there's anyone who thinks this is a terribly sophisticated market at this point, um, you know, especially when, uh, you know, especially in looking at the cryptocurrencies and seeing that, um, you know, I, if you look at story selection, right? If I was going to write a piece on Ripple or Stellar and why they're approaching all-time highs, who am I going to call? Nobody knows, right? <laughs> like, no one. The the best mm -hmm. explanation for these things are right now they are inexplicable, and really, almost the perception of the thing is reality, right? You're, there is no there's no one yeah. sitting at the other end of that computer being like, oh, I think Stellar's crypto economic network is a real innovation, and this is like how it works, and I'm super excited to make this purchase. No, they see a market where it's like, oh, this token is 25 cents, and enough people buy it, it's going to be 75 cents. And yeah, there's a lot of things in the market right now that are not great. But I think a part of it is like, you know, we're coming into this, you know, we just went through an introduction process with a whole new group of people. And I think that, you know, for those of us who have been sticking around and been watching every move, I think it's important to kind of, you know, let that process play out or just understand that it's going to play out, right? That, that's going to have 
a significant impact. The, the you know arrival of unsophisticated investors is going to fuel a lot of projects, but it's also going to bring a lot of people who need to be educated. And I think um, you know certainly a coin is something we want to do and we're something we're thinking about. But I think you know as an industry as a whole, I think that will be a big storyline uh, for next year. Because if you look at 2013, what happened? You know, a bunch of people got educated and then they lost all their money in Mount Gox, <laughs> right? Um, and that and that took years to unwind. So. Here we have another opportunity. People are educated and excited, but you know, I still think, you know, in the back of my mind, as someone who's been watching the industry for a while, I still am always looking at events and being like, okay, what's going to fall, right? What's the thing that's going to break this time? Because, um, you know, and I think there are people who have said this publicly. I think a little bit better than I can. It's that, you know, the value of Bitcoin is up twenty x, but is the sophistication of Coinbase's infrastructure up twenty x? Like, no. There's a lag there, right? And I think if you look at that as a proxy for the entire industry, um, you know, I think uh, the big story for 2018 will, will be: can the market maintain? Uh, at least, uh, you know, speaking about current cryptocurrencies, like can the market maintain uh, what it has right now? Can it can it do what it tried to do in 2013 and just sustain? You know, I think I think a sustainable sideways year would be a momentous uh, achievement. <laughs> wow, it's that's pretty pretty compelling uh, way of looking at it. The price is up twenty x, but is the infrastructure up twenty x? And um, we I'm just harking back to talking about um, people like Amber Balde being daywalkers. I often talk about um, this show um, at Blockchain Insider being the Venn diagram between kind of the the DLT space and trying to evolve financial services and the cryptocurrency space as being like this this whole new start. So it's like the Prius and the Tesla. There's starting again, and there's there's the like evolution of and actually the answer is probably somewhere in the middle for the mainstream in like five years time but how do you get those people that can converge the best ideas from both because the old world of financial services they've got some practices that evolved and some that are that no longer make sense and are no longer relevant and some that just evolved because it was good practice because society is ultimately going to want those things what can you learn from that and who's ideally positioned inside those organizations and outside those organizations to deliver those messages and convince the right people that those are the right things to do and in turn, and, and on the flip side, who are those people in, in the cryptocurrency communities doing that? And I, I see a lot of good initiatives on, on both sides. So do you see that evolving or do you see it kind of pulling in, in one direction or the other? I guess I'm split on that. I have, you know, so I guess in doing another one of our year-end initiatives, the year-end review, we sort of ask, uh, you know, people who are interesting in the industry to contribute opinion pieces. And one of the things I was looking for for a long time was someone to kind of write something about whether or not the enterprise DLT market would have a resurgent year in 2018. And I couldn't find that many people. Uh, I actually only found one person who was willing to write that or thought that that was a thing. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. I still don't know. I, I think this gets to the question about whether or not the cryptocurrencies and um, blockchains are sort of something that is directly competitive with financial services. It sort of gets into the existential questions about um, not only that, but you know whether or not this market can kind of just evolve into something that is organically different. Um, you know, I was thinking about this when I was uh, thinking about governance the other day. It's we hear the word governance on blockchains, and we assume the governance we know. We don't assume the governance we, governance we don't know, right? So, um, governance to us is people sitting in a town hall. Um, it's not recognizing that the internet has spaces that act like town halls, and that this is maybe just a structure that works better for that. Um, so, I guess to suffice to say, I guess I would answer your question. I think that. Um, 
in, I, you know, I, I think I, I'm hopeful that the enterprise and the financial services companies continue to find value in it and experiments. I think they've provided a lot of interest in, they've certainly galvanized a lot of people like Amber and um, other young people in those institutions to explore something new. I just question whether or not that, you know, the sort of applying the old to the new kind of thing, I, maybe that seems to be what they're running out of steam on here. Um, you know, it does seem to be like there's a bit of a lull. Um, part of me believes that maybe sometime in 2018, R3 will be turning out a 80 bank network for various financial services things every day. And like part of me does expect to see that resurgence once they, you know, wake up to these technologies. But then, you know, I guess on the same hand, I guess, um, you know, uh, I sometimes I kind of go with this online offline commerce thing where it's like, you know, at what point did these companies care? And if you look at offline online commerce, it's maybe you knew that future was coming in 1990, but it didn't really matter to you until the 2000s, right? There was so many things that needed to happen. Um, so, you know, I guess my statement on that would be, I don't think that clash is coming for a while. Um, if there is sort of a crossover moment between the online offline commerce, DLT, cryptocurrency worlds, I don't think it will be for a while. I think... I more expect them to continue to find value in their own ways in the technology for a long enough time. Interesting perspective. They will continue down their own path and uh, they, they both pay their masters in, in their own way. So the enterprise world gets value out of what they're trying to do and they feel good about it. And the cryptocurrency world gets value. Where I see this as interesting might be when um, institutional investors are trying to get access um, with large, with wide pools of liquidity into uh, crypto assets. How do they actually do that? when you're a pension fund, a hedge fund at scale, um, because it, it's difficult to go get an account at Coinbase for that, right? So to, to the infrastructure point, so will there be new infrastructure players or will the old infrastructure players evolve? So interesting things to play with. And, and definitely, I think Pete, you and I and Colin could could go for forever on these subjects. So um, we're up against it on time. So I'm going to have to end it here. So um, for for the f folks that are listening, where can people find out more about you and of course, um, and of course Coin, Coindesk? Yeah, so... Uh, obviously, uh, Coindesk.com, publishing news daily on uh, everything blockchain and cryptocurrency. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Pete underscore Rizzo underscore. Um, that's where I'm most active. And uh, yeah, I would love to have people, new people engage with Coindesk. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us, Pete. A big thank you to Pete. And of course, my regular co-host, GSAS himself. Colin G. Platt, as well as the amazing production team here at 11FS, Laura Watkins, our producer, and Michael Bailey, our editor, and assistant producer, Matt Snell. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please, please, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, those reviews help us so, so much. Please spread the word. Tell your friends and colleagues to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.